land tax, stamp duty, tenants. Sure, property is great, but there are easier ways to get your passive income, sometimes with franking credits. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in many different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including income-focused funds, which aim to provide yield-hungry investors with attractive income streams. Discover the BetaShares range of ETFs and how simple they can be to invest in by going to betashares.com.au. Read the relevant PDFs and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. This is a podcast by the RASC Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of the Rask Group. I'm Pete Wargent, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. Alex, how you going, mate? Good, mate. How are you? Very good. Very good. I'm glad that we can do this Q&A and ask an advisor some proper professional advice. Um, it's been a while since we've done one of these, but for those of you that don't know, uh, Alex and his wonderful team at Everest, financial advisors based all over the country, um, we've been working with them for some time and so glad that we've decided to do that because team is great. Um, you can get in contact. We've done an episode previously that explains the Everest business and also just generally how the business is different to other financial advice businesses. Uh, and you can learn more by following the link that is available uh, below this video or in the podcast player you're listening on. To kick things off, mate, we're going to answer some questions. I would like to give you two kind of like hypothetical questions because you could do both in both situations. Yep. Mm -hmm. would, would you rather... A weekend in Margaret River or a weekend in Adelaide Hills? Yeah, so um, for the for the listeners, so they know I'm I'm based over in, in Western Australia. So I know I know Margaret River um, relatively well and it's a it's a beautiful, beautiful part of the world. Um, lots to do down there in terms of um, wineries and uh, you know, and there's a chocolate mm -hmm. factory and beautiful coastline and stuff like that. However, I've never been to the Adelaide Hills, and I do hear that um, that's a pretty special place as well. Yeah. So, I'm going to pick that based on the fact that I that I haven't been there before. I like it, mate. I like it. Good choice. Everyone in Adelaide's just giving us little fist pump right now. It both are beautiful, and the Adelaide Hills is very nice, and it's pretty close to the city, so it's easy to get to when you get there. Um, second one. This is more topical. I was stuck on a plane with some Swifties recently coming back from Sydney, which happened to triple the price of the fare home from Sydney to Melbourne. Um, Taylor Swift or Ed Sheeran? Yeah, both uh, both good choices uh, in my opinion. I, I don't mind a bit, of, uh, a bit of pop. Um, but, yeah, I think maybe – Maybe we go with the queen on this one, Taylor Swift. You know, I think she's on track to do um, the highest grossing world tour ever, I think, over over a billion dollars. Um, so mm. let's back her in. It's all about her right now. So, yeah, I'll go. I'll go Taylor Swift. Respect. I think both of these artists 
did their biggest ever shows in Melbourne, um, at least at the time when they did them. So I'm quite proud of that fact at the Melbourne Cricket Ground, MCG. Good choice, mate. Good choice. And it keeps everyone happy, I think. Uh, all the Swifties are kind of like riding that wave right now. So good for you. No complaints coming your way. So just before we get to the questions today, uh, you can write in by hitting the link in your podcast player that says, ask a question. Uh, this episode that we do where we ask financial advisors like Alex, uh, basically any questions that you might have, um, they go across all the different Rask podcasts typically. And so you can select any of the channels. But if you do want to speak with Alex in particular, if you um, want to get uh, kind of like a, a proper expert opinion on a general question that you may have about finance, select the Australian Finance Podcast and your question will come through to us. Uh, of course, if you have more specific questions, go and reach out to them because we cannot give personalized advice in this, which is why we ask for things like a funny name on the way in. You'll get a few of those in here. Uh, and try and keep it general in nature because we cannot answer personalized questions. You need to seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before you do that. First question is about budgeting woes and it comes from Birdie. So Birdie, great question here because this is relevant to everyone. Very open-ended, this question, which is what we like here on the show. Why can I never stick to a budget? Alex, I know you and the team do a lot of like cash flow analysis. You review people's bank accounts, their spending, all that sort of stuff. Been doing this for years. Birdie's saying can never stick to a budget. Do you have any general tips? Yeah, so I think it's um it's a pretty common um, problem to have. Uh, I think a lot of yeah a lot of people struggle to to stick to a budget or sort of save consistently because um, at the end of the day, you know, we're not we're not robots. We're humans. You know, we have we have emotions and things like that, which doesn't always um pair up perfectly with uh with finance mm -hmm. some of the things i guess to to think about as you know perhaps why it can be difficult to stick to a budget is is firstly it may not be realistic i've sort of seen um yeah. over the years psychologically people try to give themselves a budget which is just simply too strict um so you've got to you've got to have you, you've got to be yeah i guess realistic in in setting your numbers um and what i'm talking about there what, what we often see is when people create a budget, generally they do it for like their fixed expenses. So maybe like their phone bill, their gym, their council rates, if they've got a house as an example. But they don't tend to budget always for like more of those discretionary items. So we're talking about Taylor Swift just before. Obviously, um, those tickets were pretty expensive, I think, to, to go see her. Um, so it may be a case of they haven't sort of say set themselves a weekly limit or a fortnightly limit or a monthly limit for a set of um, set amount of money to be put aside for those sort of discretionary items. So it might be, you know, I don't know 250 bucks a week or again, yeah. whatever they sort of want to do. And if they want to buy the, say, the Taylor Swift tickets, which I think were 700 bucks kind of at a minimum or something. Were they really? Wow. wow. That's what I was told. I don't quote me on that, but I think that was, they were pretty expensive. So, you know, in that example, you'd have to sort of save up a couple of weeks before, um, you'd be able to purchase that, right? But that's yeah. then like an easy way of just sort of yeah, setting that spending parameter for more of those discretionary things. Other ways that you can, I guess, work on really trying to say sticking to this budget. So using different banks as an example. So you might have mm. um, one bank for more of your, your everyday spending and bills, but then, you know, you're sending a set amount to a different bank um, for your for your savings, so you might be like, I want to save mm. 250 bucks a week, so I'm going to send that out to a different bank, which then puts a bit of a physical barrier, right, to then get your hands back on that money, as an example, and makes I've, you. That's a great behavioural nudge, right? It's just yeah. kind of like a blocker. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Because then, if you want to move it back, you said you, you're going to have to stop and think about. All right, you know, should I should I be doing this? Is it is it really going to be in my best interest? Um, and I guess yeah, the other yeah, well, two other things as well is trying to link it back to a goal. So like, what are you creating the budget for? Like, yeah, what, what's basically the reason for it? Are you saving for a house? Are you you know, trying to, I don't know, put money away for an investment so you don't have to, you know, work your entire life. Are you saving up for a car, um, a holiday? So linking it back to a goal will sort of help with that accountability piece in terms of sticking to it because you know now, hey, if I go and, you know, spend more than what the budget says, it means that it's, you know, it's an extra month before I can go on that holiday or it's an extra month or two before I can now get that car as an example too. And the final thing I'll just sort of close out on as well is like, if, if you've tried sort of all these things and, and it really is just not not working for you, don't don't you know, sort of feel ashamed or um, go get some professional yeah. help at the end of the day because um, it may be worth then spending a bit of money um, with a professional to help them effectively or for the, sorry for them to, to to help you you know set up a budget which is which is going to work going forward and you know a financial advisor can obviously do that but there are obviously um, people that call themselves money coaches out there as well which will sort of specialize on this sort of stuff too yeah um, yeah yeah I think that's great advice because I was actually going to say so just to recap your points there you got to go like is the budget realistic and there's no shame in that right is it realistic for your situation I myself Alex used to do this as I'm sure many of your clients have in the past it's like you have if you're really engaged with this sort of stuff, you get like a 10 line spreadsheet and you're like, I'm going to spend this much on Netflix and then this much on Amazon. And then you go into the minutiae and you've, it only takes like one of those things to increase their price or to circumstances to change only a little bit. And like, it's like the bolts start to rattle on the whole wheel falls apart before you've even figured out what's going wrong. Um, so being realistic and that kind of does tie in really well with your last one is, is that if you have found in the past that you've been setting those types of, budgets in place don't feel ashamed if you don't achieve it like be kind to yourself like i feel like that's that's a really good piece of advice your other one was fixed versus variable expenses making sure that you know what is a discretionary expense like say tay tay uh, versus say like the mortgage um you probably have a better indication of one or the other different banks just to create that mental barrier evan and kate did some fantastic episodes on like you know brain hacks last year and then the goals based thing i think the goals based thing is the thing that most people struggle with but i think it's becoming more into the discussion and i know you've been doing this for years as an advisor your role is to manage behavior as much as it is to look good on a spreadsheet right and if not more and so understanding what it is that someone actually wants because once they know that what is it that you really want the budgeting stuff kind of falls into place because you're like okay we know what you want it's no longer going to feel like a pain to do a budget because you're moving towards that thing, whether it's a house purchase, whether it's a wedding. Yeah, that's right. Um, because yeah, like you said, now you're actually, you're on track to, like you said, where you want to be or what you want to be doing. Um, and I guess the kind of like the acid test as well, in my opinion, for a budget is if you do set one for yourself at that three month mark, that's kind of the point where I think you can be honest with yourself and be like, you know, is is this working? Or, you know, have I potentially mm. tried to cut my discretionary just way too much in that I feel like I can't do anything and it's really impacting my lifestyle? Or it's the alternative, if you get three months in and you're like, yeah, I really feel like I've always got money for my bills. I've always got money to, to go out with my friends and yeah, buy that Tay-Tay ticket if I want it. So that's a good sign that it is sort of working too. But as you mm. mentioned, and yeah, and I, I started with like it, don't be too hard on yourself like it has to be realistic otherwise you're just not going to stick to it 
yeah, and you're gonna feel terrible about finance, budgeting, and all that sort of stuff. Remember, yeah, the um, yeah, I love that acid test. By the way, three month kind of yardstick. Give yourself a chance and and reflect. Um, realistically, like the math doesn't lie, folks. Like you got to either earn more or spend less to get that saving goal. Like it's or both if you really want to supercharge it. And um, yeah, we've done some fantastic episodes around like career progression and stuff like that as well. So go and check those out. Great question, Bertie. Um, the next one comes from Teen Investor. Um, or actually Kate said this one's called, she's titled it as Teen Investor. It's from Big Happy Hippo 123, which is quite a, if you got ChatGPT to give you a, an anonymous name, that's probably what it would come up with. Hi, I am a 15-year-old teenager going into high school. Uh, I would love to start my investing journey with micro-investing. Great that you're starting early. Let's just get that in there. Uh, goes on to say, what platform do you think would best suit my needs? I would like for it to be a custodial model, obviously they say in brackets, and I would also like to automate my investments, e.g. not a cost every time I add money. Thank you for any ideas. Now, we can't tell you which platform to go with specifically in this situation, teen investor. We'd love to help you out and make you an even happier hippo. But the reality is that we can only speak generally. Uh, and so if we do mention names of things, it's important that you reflect on that and you read, obviously, all the T's and C's. Now, there were a few things that I thought were interesting about this, Alex. The first one is that they obviously, as their words, wanted a custodial model and they wanted to automate their investments. The third thing is they're pretty young to be starting, which is a great thing. Over to yeah. you. Definitely. Um, yeah, starting at 15, is uh, it's awesome. So, yeah, well done to the, the big happy hippo, one, two, three, on that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that, that stuck out for me as well. So, you know, st- stating that I'd like for it to be a custodial model and then in brackets, obviously. I'm just going to assume that they've said that because of the, the cost factor in yeah. that a, um, a, a custodial model um, is typically uh, going to be cheaper than the alternative. Um, it's important to remember as well uh, within this that um, – the, the, the parent's name would have to be on the account as well. So mm. I do sort of wonder uh, potentially if they're maybe getting their their wires crossed a little bit um, with stating the custodial model versus, yeah, like a, obviously the parent is the trustee uh, and the minor is the beneficiary in, in this case. Mm. Now, like you said, we can't obviously make any recommendations of what, what platform exactly to, to use. There are a lot of great options out there. Um, so I'm just going to list, um, you know, four uh, sort of options, which again, in no particular order or anything like that. So mm-hmm. Pearl has got a micro investing um, capability these days. You know, you've got Raise, which a lot of people would have heard of before. Yep. Sharesies does something similar. Um, and then this is not a micro investing option, but Superhero is a custodial um, model as an example. So custodial models for those uh, listing generally have lower fees and generally have lower minimum minimum amounts that you can invest. So yep. Superhero in this example, $100 is the, is the minimum there. Um, however, the micro investing apps generally, you know, you can do you know, 50 cents or can you do one cent? You probably can. I think um, you, I think you may be able to with sharesies. I don't know okay. that, but I think yeah. so. Yeah, 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 yeah. And these are all great um, things to consider, which I think is is less important in this case. But just things to consider in the future is obviously yeah the fees that they charge um, within these these certain platforms. You know that needs to come into some consideration at some point in time. I think more though, you know, starting at fifteen is, is great, uh, and it's just Absolutely. about yeah setting the behaviour 
getting that money compounding over the long term and um, you know to really sort of set themselves up and the micro investing platforms are a great great way to do that because you can invest you know literally like a dollar um, just to start to get a feel for your own risk profile as well like how do you feel as the market goes up and down you know how do you how do you sort of react to that too I love that and um so I'll just repeat that list of shares is Superhero, Perla, Rays, and Comsec is probably the next one I'd throw uh, in yeah, there. Co- yeah, Comsec, Comsec Pocket. Comsec yep. Pocket, which is like the light version. Um, for full disclosure for everyone, uh, we are sponsored by Perla and have been for many, many years, just as a disclosure. Um, but all of those kind of facilitate that. The one that I might single out here, and I want to touch on what you said about the parents. Uh, it will have to be in the parents' name because in Australia – legally a child cannot own shares in their own legal name they can benefit from them but um interestingly hippo i'm just going to call you hippo just as a shortened version um you might be able to create that account or have it as your parents account and then convince them to book all of their travel and their accommodation and buy things through rays um, yes. that then is reinvested back into your portfolio even though they spend the money. So you might say to your parents, you know those Christmas presents you're going to buy through booking.com or the, you know how we're going to go on that family trip? Can I book it through the raise account and use booking.com knowing that when the travel is undertaken, that two, three, four, five percent of the rewards is then invested into your account just as a little hack to get your parents to contribute to your long-term investing. But that's a great question and uh, thank you for sending it through. Uh, okay, so this one doesn't come through with a name, but it's about uh, a mum in her 50s with less than 10K in super. So uh, this is from, a, I guess, a listener who wants the best for their family. So They go go on to say, my mum works for herself and currently only has $8,000 in super. She has 70K in savings left over from when she withdrew super in COVID. Would it be wise for her to put a massive chunk of these savings back into super via, say, a re-contributing strategy? Mum's hesitation is she wants to save for a house deposit. On the other hand, getting a home loan as a single woman over 50 may be too difficult anyway. Financially speaking, would investing in super rather than buying a house be a more sensible option? I'm just going to pause for a moment and just say that these are some pretty big life decisions and it is important to get advice at this stage of life, even if the balance is small, because there's a few tangly things around here like superannuation rules, but also there may be strategies with Centrelink that could be forecast by a financial advisor or maybe just, you know, maybe there are other levers that they can pull. So uh, we've got a big chunk of savings, Alex. We've got a small super balance. We've got a single mom who's heading towards uh, retirement and wants to make herself secure both in the way she lives and hopefully in super. A lot of people are in this situation. They go through having kids, particularly as a single parent. They don't have the balance that they want. So we're just looking for some general kind of ideas around this. Yeah, I think I'll just start off by being that we're, we're going to approach this this genuinely. We obviously don't know this person's situation. There's quite a few variables here which we would need to know um, if we were mm. to obviously advise personally. So first thing I think uh, to think about is, yeah, it, it's great that they're obviously, um, you know, considering, yeah, what do we do basically with this, with this lump sum of savings? So when you're considering say in this situation of potentially putting more money back into super um, your own income that you're earning is quite important to consider because a super fund will pay tax at 15 percent okay whereas if you're you know you're earning above um, let's just call it 20 grand for for ease of numbers 
you're paying 19 cents in the dollar and then you go on to pay 34 and a half. So most people are in the 34 and a half percent bracket um, mm. with, within Australia, which is higher than obviously the, the super fund tax rate of 15. So if this person is um, working full time, let's just assume it may be then beneficial to potentially contribute some of this money into super to reduce their tax first and foremost. Okay, yep. so from a tax perspective, that's sort of important. However, I think before you would even consider that, again, it comes back to, to the goal. So it sounds yeah. like it is important that they want to own a house, okay? That we'll just assume that that is obviously what they want to do. Now, obviously, the practicality of that may be difficult. Obviously, single parent, um, so what they earn is going to be a large factor, again, on, on how sort of achievable that is. I would be speaking, um, you know, potentially to a, to a mortgage broker to understand what your borrowing capacity is. Um, yeah. So at least you know that first and foremost um, before you're sort of making any decisions around, okay, you know, this this chunk of savings and my income is never going to get me sort of the house or the unit that I potentially want um, in the area where I want to live. So then maybe this is then an alternative to put it into a better tax structure, which again, if this person's in their, in their 50s, the, the time frame that they can potentially withdraw that money back out or access that money um, is a lot shorter than someone say in their in their 20s or 30s um, as well. The other thing I had noted down, again, coming back to that goal of home ownership, is remember like it's, it's like you said, it's, it's planning out or thinking out, okay, when I do go into retirement, how would I feel renting versus owning my own house? The Australian, um, retirement system right is still traditionally largely based around home ownership so yeah. not having a house at this point in time can often be a, a little bit of a disadvantage i do think obviously over time that will change because less and less people are are going to be owning in the future due to you know affordability and things like that but someone in their um in their 50s right now i don't think that system is going to change um anytime soon as an example yeah. so it is it is thinking about that um i think is is important too and then the other thing to consider is, yeah, as I, I've kind of already touched on, but if they were to, say, contribute this money back into super, it can obviously be pulled out at a later point in time, um, you know, in their 60s, which can then obviously be used, again, you know, to potentially purchase something um, in terms of a, a house or a unit at that point in time as mm. well. So there's quite a few things to sort of consider here. A lot of it is around really what, what they're earning. Um, Agreed. Because if... So as we think about the life cycle of most Aussies, um, even if you're – and this life cycle I'm about to describe applies to couples and singles equally, but it's more pronounced for singles. Typically, like in your 20s and 30s, you, you find a partner, you marry or whatever your situation may be, but then you look at buying a house and that's a big expense. Um, then you get in the house, you've got a big mortgage and you typically have kids, you go down to that one income typically or one and a bit. Um, which is pretty tight. And then the kids kind of get into high school. You can start to resume, you start to earn a little bit more. You maybe start to go on those holidays. Then they're old enough to start thinking about moving out and you may want to support them financially. But then when they get to a stage, like probably in their mid-20s, they're kind of independent. Um, they're earning their own income. And you as the, the the person who's got the empty nest, you're thinking, well, now it's actually kind of like a the, the reawakening because all of a sudden you've got a bit more time you can re-engage in the workforce. Potentially, you can actually earn more and you can really supercharge that super balance. But a lot of the times when people are single and this is totally fair enough after you've been through kids and you've done all that, 
it's not always easy just to jump straight back on the bandwagon. Like you can't just jump straight back into a great job that you love. And emotionally, there's sometimes a bit of a hang up there in terms of people re-engaging. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't understand all this technology stuff that the kids are talking about. These like there's always these kind of limiting beliefs. But I think that to your point, and I agree with you completely, that the missing piece, obviously, we don't have any information on this person. We couldn't know who they are if they walked past us in the street or slapped us in the face. Um, is does mum want to work? And if mum yeah. wants to work, she can really go for it now by the sounds of it. And she can make bank and then decide, okay, maybe. And I, to be honest, if if it was my mum, I'd be saying, mum, if you're working, let's see if you can earn more. And then let's go and pay a financial advisor and understand the options. Like you said, mortgage broker is basically free. They'll tell you probably over a phone call what your loose capacity might be. Let's weigh up our options. Um, but regardless, earning money is not going to be a bad thing at this stage. You know, it gives you the yeah, flexibility. Absolutely. And like you said, it's, you know, when you when you are in your 50s, um, again, it obviously depends on everyone's situation. But for, for the majority of people, yeah, kids have kind of left or are largely, you know, independent now. So it is a real kind of golden opportunity to sort of, yeah, have, say, five to 10 years to really start thinking about, yeah, supercharging. Super as an example, or again, it, it's really retirement is now somewhat on the horizon. You know, you can, mm-hmm. you can, you can sort of see it. So... Doing a bit of um, forecasting and planning, out, I think, is really important. Like again, for this, um, <clears throat> excuse me, this this hypothetical person, it's well, let's map out. You know, how long do you actually potentially need to work to have a comfortable retirement as well? Um, mm. That gives, I think, people a lot of comfort knowing what what that time period is because it might only be sixty or it might be sixty five or you know, it might be 70, but at a part time job as well. So you're not going to get that burnout over that period of time too potentially. Yeah, yeah, love it. And um, just for those folks that are playing along at home, you can contribute money to Super yourself as well. Uh, you don't need your employer to do it, but your employer is obliged to do it. Um, up to $27,500 a year as part of what we call a concessional contribution. And as you get closer to Super, in my opinion, those things make more and more sense, uh, assuming it does not conflict with an existing goal. So you can't put money into super, for example, and then just decide tomorrow to pull it out and buy a house. It's not the way it works. So if you do put that money in, you've got to be sure that it's going in the right direction. But if you are in that situation, it can be a wonderful way for a single or a couple to save for their retirement and save fast due to the benefits of taxes, Alex rightly pointed out. All right, mate, we've got two more questions and then I'm going to get your key takeaway for the episode. Uh, I'm going to name this one playing with leverage because it was a bit of a weird one. Um, and I wasn't a hundred percent sure where this was going. Um, but should I leverage my existing shares to invest in other investments, i.e. ETFs or shares? Um, now I can only imagine, I actually don't know what they're talking about. I can imagine maybe taking out some sort of loan or something like this, which I don't know. What did, how did you take this? Yeah, so I'm going to take the question literally first, and then we'll we'll talk more towards yeah potentially, you know, <laughs> unlocking um, say equity in a in a property or something like that to potentially invest in shares. So maybe more of a, a, a yeah. gearing strategy or a debt recycling strategy possibly as well. Um, so in terms of the question, you know, can so I, I've interpreted can I basically use my existing share portfolio? So that's just say it's 200 grand or 500 grand worth of shares to then basically leverage, so use that as security mm. to borrow more money to then invest. Now, again, a mortgage broker is going to be the best person to ask, but I had a, a chat to the one we have in the office here and, and practically um, 
it's very hard to do in theory not really something that the banks basically yeah. do so they'll use a, a property as security it's one of the advantages of property that banks are, are much more comfortable with it um than shares mm. but yeah you, you can't really as far as i could at least with you know a stock standard sort of retail bank go in there and be like hey I've got $200,000 worth of shares. I want to use that as security for you to lend me more money. They're, they're just not going to do it. Um, yeah. So so practically, this isn't really that that possible. Um, so now let's maybe switch over and be like, okay, let's just say, um, yeah, we are able to, to borrow some money to effectively invest. Maybe that's, again, drawing down some equity from a property or something like that um, that we have a... Uh, a security for. So you've got so a property, you, you you have the property and you've got a little bit of money in there sloshing around. You think maybe I could do something with that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So that's yep. say you've got, you've got a hundred grand worth of what they call usable equity. Um, and you don't want to buy another property in this example. You So you, you, you pull that out to effectively um, uh, go in, and invest in, in the share market, which would be considered a, a gearing strategy is what they would basically call that. Yeah. So when you when you look at look to do that, um, I think the main or two of the sort of the main things to look at is firstly your, you know, your risk tolerance or what they call your risk profile. So how do you feel about, you know, potentially if you do invest that and it falls by 20% as an example, like, and again, this is a tricky thing to do, but you try mm -hmm. to sort of put yourself in that hypothetical situation, that, you know, are you going to panic and want to sell it or, you know, you're going to be okay with it because you know that markets do move up and down um, in the short term. And what sort of helps guide that, I think, more is that investment time frame. So if I'm going to take yeah. this 100 grand and invest it, is that going to be for the next 10 years and I'm just leaving it because I'm not going to need access to it? Or is it a situation of, well, I only want to do it for a year and then I want it back? If it's the latter, mm. that's probably not the way to go, right? Because, um, again, markets can go up and down. Let's just take um, the last two years, you know, 2022, shocking year for markets, 2023, much better, right? So they, yeah. they move up and down and no one really knows what it's going to do on a year-on-year -year basis. But forecasted out long enough, so 10 plus years, historically speaking, it does generally always go up. So that's that's really important. And then the second thing I think you need to look at is um, your cash flow. So if you are going to go and borrow this money, you've got to pay interest on that, which because it's for investment purposes, would be tax deductible. So again, depending on how much money you mm. make will depend on how much of a tax deduction um, you get. <clears throat> but effectively, you do have to pay um, pay this back, right, over over a period of time. So yeah, it's a loan. Make, that's right, it's a loan. So you've got, you've got to pay it back. So it's making sure that you can cover the cost of that, obviously, in the interim. Um, you would probably get some, well, we'll just assume that you know there's some Aussie um, Aussie shares exposure in this example. So there would be some dividends potentially coming, so some income that you would receive, which will help, obviously, with these repayments. But again, you've got to make sure that you've got enough buffers in place that if, um, you know, something you know, minor or major happens, you're still going to be able to meet those repayments as well. And again, you're not going to have to sort of um, sell in a hurry or anything like that. I love that because I think maybe the questioner playing with leverage in this in this question um, may have actually made a mistake. I'm guessing. Should yeah. I leverage my property to invest in other investments, e.g., shares? And I think that's the way. That's kind of like this the non-literal way to interpret this question. And I think this is something that we've had a lot of conversations on on the podcast lately. Is you know someone presents to you, Alex, they go, "Hey, mate, like I've got." you know, a $800,000 house, but my mortgage is only $400,000. Can I do anything with that extra 400 in there? I've still got 20, 30 years to invest. I want to be sensible. I don't want to just like go and 
you know, put it all into some speculative stocks, but can I put it in ETFs? Can I invest it for the long term? And what you're saying is you can, but it just requires very careful strategy, knowing that it's got to be long-term focused. And to be honest, I, in my opinion, I've had some of the debates that I've had on uh, X or Twitter lately is some people don't always get this. In fact, a lot of people don't always get this right, whether it's the time frame, as you said, or even just practically what happens when the money hits my account? How do I document that with my accountant? Mm. Where does, what does the mortgage broker tell me to do? Like all of those things, get advice, get proper advice. Um, this is, yeah, it's something that we spoke about with Chris Bates, mortgage broker recently, um, but get a financial advisor who's qualified to give you that advice um, just to make sure that you do understand the risks. Good one, mate. We've got one final question here, uh, which is from Latoni, the future retiree. Um, so they say, cost for financial planning. And I thought this was a good one because we've spoken about this previously and I'm hoping you can riff on this for a bit. Cost for financial planning. Sounds like it's a setup and then off you go and good luck. <laughs> Pretty, uh, maybe it's a bit of a cynical take, but is there any follow-up meetings in years to come, especially if your circumstances change? Or is there any reduced new fees in this case or just another full fee setup again, question mark? Thanks for all of the information you have shared. Great podcast, says Latoni. And thank you, Tony, for this um, wonderful question because Alex and I did speak about this and how kind of the industry tends to operate, but also how Everest is a little bit different in this regard. And it actually is very appealing in my Regards. So maybe mate, take this however you want, but if you could frame this question is like, what's typical? And then how do you guys do it? Maybe that's a good way to do it. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, I'll talk about what's what's typical or traditionally what's been done in the financial advice industry and then, yeah, how we do it at, at Everest Wealth. Right. So, um, you know, again, if you want to seek some financial advice, you would, you would meet with the, your financial advisor. You would effectively agree on what the scope of work is going to be in terms of how they're going to help you, what that process is, and then what they're going to charge. So generally, there will be a, a, a one-off cost at the start, which will effectively cover the initial advice piece and creating what they call the statement of advice, which is the financial plan. Mm-hmm. I don't know why they call it statement of advice. The public doesn't really know what that means, but that's that's the financial plan, okay? Um, so that, that gets created for you. And generally, as part of that as well, we'll include implementation um, of that advice as well. So... We wanted to move Superfund from A to B because we can save fees and we can, you know, the investment option there is more appropriate for whatever we're looking to do. That's the advice. And then the financial advisor would help you um, execute that as well. So there's a, a one-off cost for that. Mm-hmm. Typically in the industry, um, for cl- when clients are, are seeking financial advice, they would generally then become what they call an ongoing client. So. What that basically means is they'll pay um, an agreed upon ongoing fee um, to to the financial advisor or the financial advice firm, and they will receive then ongoing assistance going forward as as part of that. So that would typically involve normally at least one catch up a year. Um, there may be multiple touch points throughout the year. Again, this would all be basically tabled in terms of what you get in what they call an ongoing service agreement. Okay. Now. Where we do it a little bit different at Everest Wealth um, compared to, um, again, typically the industry, is we're a lot more flexible on that ongoing part. So when people come to see us, um, we give them the option. So effectively, if you would like some help or like some advice initially and then have that um, that executed and help set up with that, we, we charge a one-off cost for that. And then with us, you don't need to become an ongoing client past that point in time if you don't wish. Okay, you certainly can. We mm. do have we do have ongoing clients, but you know it might be a case of 
again, you just want some help um, yeah, reviewing your super fund or a contribution strategy to super or looking to, to set up an investment outside super and you don't quite know how to do that. Um, Again, it really depends on everyone's specific sort of situation with this in, the, in that the ongoing help may be warranted sometimes, but sometimes it won't be yeah. as well. So it's a question I answer quite often because when we, we go through clients, we go, yeah, these are basically the two options you have. This is the fork in the road. And the follow-up question I often get is, okay, if we don't go ongoing, how does it work from here? And the answer then, again, I'll just speak to Everest Wealth's um, yeah, sure. sort of process is, is it, it largely de depends, okay? So it may be a situation where we've helped you out, Owen. Um, you know, we did a lot of work for you, you know, for yourself and, and Sarah, um, put a, you know, a lot of advice in place, helped it, you know, implemented it. But then largely after that, it was just you, say, shoveling money into an investment to, or, you know, shoveling money to pay down mm -hmm. debt or, again, whatever that sort of is. Two years later, um, your situation's changed. Um, you guys are going to have a kid now, as an example. I'm just I'm picking on you. Here. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so obviously, you know, things are going to change a little bit. We're going to go down to one and a half incomes. You know, we need to maybe think about some life insurance now, as an example. Again, whatever that sort of is. You would come back to us in this example because you're, you're not ongoing, and we would go, okay, great. Oh, and this is the scope of work we now need to do. And it may not be as big as it was before, but effectively this is now the, you know, the one-off fee that we would charge mm -hmm. to now again, provide this additional advice and provide any sort of additional implementation. So to um, Latoni, the future, uh, future retiree's point, it can be a reduced cost, that say that, mm -hmm. that, that re-engagement, um, often with us, it is typically because again we've kind of already done the bulk of the work a couple of years before but yep. again it, it really just depends you know you might come to me in this example and you you've now won lotto so it's just a completely different situation yeah. as an example so we almost have to start again um but yeah. i guess it's important to yeah you, you would discuss that with the financial advisor so we always discuss that you know when you come to see us in terms of this is the scope of work this is what we would charge this is what you're getting for that this is the process are you happy with that um yes or no mm. Yeah, cool. I like it. Um, I, I really do like that. Uh, so basically, there's two options uh, here. It's like the on, a formalized ongoing agreement, or if you do the once off, then you can always just go back to the advisor again um, in, in your instance, which is very common. Um, are you able just before I riff on that, that the two different pathways, can you maybe just give us and listeners, I know you've said it before, but just context of like, what is the ballpark range of fees that typically someone might pay if they just want the once off, say through Everest Wealth. Yeah, so through Everest Wealth, our minimum fee for once off, which would include the advice and the implementation, I believe is a smidge under four grand is what we would charge for that. Which is pretty, pretty compelling, um, particularly if you can pay for some of the advice you may receive through Super. Yes, that's yeah. correct. And I guess another thing, if I can add, this is probably getting a little bit more technical, but like what we would do as well, depending on whether the client wants to become ongoing or not is when you come to see a financial advisor, um, you know, the products which we may or may not use, like, you know, a lot of them the public have access to, like everyone's got access to, to Perla as an example. And we do use Perla from time to time, depending on the client situation. But we also have access to an additional set of products which the public don't have access to. Now, a financial advisor is always going to act in your best interest in terms of which um, product they effectively go for. But some of the um, and some of the products which which we have access to are actually you know very cheap, um, mm. and very competitive, and again have a whole list of investment options and, and and what have you. 
but they may require a financial advisor to sit on that product as an example. So if the client is thinking, yep, I'm going to need ongoing help going forward, I, do, I value that, then that may be uh, an avenue that we do sort of explore as well as I guess the, the, mm. the standard products. Whereas if it's someone's situation where they're really just going to need the one-off advice now and the implementation, then go and do their own thing for a couple of years. Like I said, we're just shoveling money into an investment or something like that. And the amount of money obviously comes into that too. Then we may look to use a more, um, yeah, a product which effectively the public has more access to because sure. again, you don't want to be ringing me up for a password and I don't want you ringing me up for a password to be honest if you're, <laughs> if you're not you know you're not an ongoing client because yeah that so that that admin side yeah. also kind of, you know, factors into um when we are choosing which which effectively you know, yeah, product which we may or may not use based on the based on the strategy that we're going to implement and based on obviously the ultimate goal that we're trying to achieve here too yeah I love it um so uh that is really interesting. So for folks that don't know what Alex, can, I just might do an uh, abridged version just quickly. Yep. So financial advisors can use different software and different uh, tools and different investments, different insurance, different, they have a whole different range of things that maybe you and I listening to this, we cannot get. Um, but some of those things, are platforms, what we call platforms in the industry, which might be common names, a NetWealth Hub, uh, and there are others. But that is kind of like a, a suite of tools that are often only available to financial advisors. And oftentimes you'll see that in your statement advice if you do, do, do ongoing because it makes the administration of everyone's situations easier, fingers crossed, if, if it all works out, but it normally does. Um, so that is really interesting and that's typical of what you might see in an ongoing financial advice relationship. Um, the other thing I might call it is I often see, Alex, uh, I know you deal with people that are like in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and even into their 50s. But what I find with typically older clients as they go towards retirement, 50s, 60s, 70s, is they do go with advisors and they do select the option that they do want ongoing help and they do have bigger balances. So they are prepared to pay the extra amount in fees, which is completely fine. Um, it's just that it does entitle some people to a different experience if they want that. So just know what you're getting. Just know that there are two options. Just know that some advisors like Everest Wealth will offer you both. Some will only offer one. Um, it's up to you as the individual at the end of the day to ask the right questions of your financial advisor and make sure you're comfortable on an ongoing basis. Mate, um, so final question, uh, which is the one that I always ask you to, to give to our listeners every episode because we cover a lot of ground. There's a lot of different concepts, a lot of different terms, a lot of different components of what we talk about in these Q&As. But if someone's got two minutes listening to this right now, they're driving in their Hyundai, they've just about got to work, they've just heard, heard us serenade them with all this financial wisdom, what is the action point that you would want to leave them with today? What's something that they could do? Yeah, they're probably absolutely sick of my voice by now, so I, I apologise for that. Um, yeah, I was having a good thing. So we're 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 we are recording this on the twenty third of February, um, twenty twenty four. So you know we're starting to get into the year now. You know the wheels are starting to turn. These sorts of things, um, mm -hmm. social events are starting to happen. Everyone's largely back at work now. School started, all those sorts of things. So yep. I thought it would do, would be good just to sort of call out before you know you know before we know it, we're sort of you know in June or July or anything like that. That you know you may have made um, you know a few year, a few New Year's resolutions at the start of this year or some things mm -hmm. that you wanted to. Sort of tick off. So what I'm sort of calling out here is just just checking in with yourself in terms of you know what that was and basically have you made any progress with that? And I think the 
aim is to try to make some progress with that in some shape or form by the end of March. So give yourself into the end of sort of Q1, whether that's, you know, you were going to engage a professional this year for some reason, you know, you were going to review your budget, you were going to get your will done. That's something we hear quite often. Or if it's more of a, you know, um, a health goal. So you were going to, um, you wanted to hit a certain exercise goal as an example, just try to get something in place that you're moving towards whatever that goal is before the end of March because a lot of the time that just that initial getting over that inertia is the, is the hardest part. Yep, I like that. So just check in with yourself. Check in with your goals that you set. The former version of yourself set a couple of months ago. Where are you at? How are you tracking with them? And this comes back to the very beginning of the episode where we talked about budgeting. Just be kind to yourself. Everyone knows that the average New Year's resolution doesn't make it till February. So be kind to yourself. If you haven't got it, keep those wheels moving. Keep the progress. It's okay if some of those things haven't worked out. I can tell you for one, like I'm trying to eat healthier, exercise, put away my phone an hour before bed, do all those types of things. It doesn't always work. Had Maccas yesterday. Let's be honest. Um, It is delicious. (laughs) Don't go and eat Maccas. We probably planted that seed in your head now. But Reality is just check in with yourself. So I think that's that's wonderful, wonderful advice. Uh, for anyone that is watching, you can head to the link in your show notes or head straight to Everest Wealth. They're also available on all the socials. Uh, check them out. Um, great team over at Everest Wealth. Uh, for anyone that contributes to our next Q&A, here's a special. For anyone, actually, we'll do it for this episode as well. If you did write in any of these questions, please get in contact with us at RASC. Uh, if you were any of these people playing with leverage, financial planning, Latoni, um, if you were the teen investor, the hippo, uh, birdie, anyone, mums in her 50s with 10K and super, um, get in contact with us and you can, at your choosing, pick any free course that's available, any course that's available on Rask, whether it's free or premium. We've got $500 courses on there. You can have it for free. Just write into us and say, hey, I was the one that asked that question. And if you ask the question in the next episode, exactly the same thing. We'll give you a free course, no matter even if it's our most premium or if you want to become part of our membership, whatever. Just write into us and uh, you'll get some free stuff because we want to say thanks for sending in such great questions. Alex, this is heaps of fun, mate. I'm looking forward to doing the next one. Thanks for joining me. Sounds good, mate. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning into the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax, or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service. 
Designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.